Good afternoon, and welcome to the Jewish Policy Center webinar. I am Shoshana Bryan, Senior Director of the JPC and your host. A quick intro today and then to our guest, Elon Berman of the American Foreign Policy Council. The JPC was founded in 1985 to provide perspectives and analysis of foreign and domestic policies by scholars, academics, and commentators. You can find us on our website, jewishpolicycenter.org. There you can sign up for our Insight articles and our magazine, InFocus Quarterly. The winter issue of InFocus is up right now. It is called The American Awakening, uh, and it's about what happened to the American Jewish community in the wake of October 7th. The spring issue will be up shortly, not so shortly, next month. And it is the Israel issue, and it will look at Israel's ongoing battle for the security of its people. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. The JPC supports a strong American defense capability, U.S.-Israel security cooperation, and missile defense. Right now, however, we see our most important job as supporting the legitimacy and security of Israel against anyone who would deny those. And now more than ever, we support the government of Israel and the IDF in their defense of the people of Israel and in bringing to justice the perpetrators of the massacres, rapes, hostage-taking, and rocket barrages um, from Gaza and making Hamas and its fellow travelers release the hostages. As an organization that sits slightly to the right of center, the Jewish Policy Center advocates for small government, low taxes, free trade, fiscal responsibility, energy security, free speech, and intellectual diversity. Since we started this series in January of 2020, which surprises me when I think about it, We've covered many sides of Israel and the U.S.-Israel security relationship, the Abraham Accords, some of the many and mostly threatening sides of China and Iran, wars in Ukraine and Azerbaijan, as well as American defense policy, school choice, and the Supreme Court. If you missed a few, you can binge watch on our website. That's jewishpolicycenter.org. Today, we're going off on a little bit of a tangent, but not really. Without projecting what the end of Israel's defensive war in Gaza is going to look like, or what the future holds for the area and the people, it's clear that the Palestinians and other people have been impacted by and formulated by extremist teachings that began decades ago. If you read Anat Wilf's really excellent book, The War for Return, you understand that the determination of Arab leadership from the beginning, from before 1948, was to never permit a discussion of the legitimacy of the state of Israel in any borders. Refugees were a tool for keeping that conversation where the Arabs wanted it. Now, it should be said, as the Abraham Accords have proven surprisingly resilient since October 7th, some Arab leaders have changed their views about Israel, about Jews, and others have not. What we've learned in Gaza, not that we didn't know it before, but what we learned in Gaza is that UNRWA, funded by the US, and the EU and others have been providing materials that exacerbate this radical teaching and inculcate the hatred of Israel, Jews, and the West into generations of Palestinians. Can we go back? Can we turn back the clock? What do we do in other countries? Extremism, religious, economic, and nationalist, has historically been difficult to address and defeat. Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan required not only military efforts, but all also occupation after the fact. Soviet communism, on the other hand, um, collapsed without open warfare. So many countries have faced and are still facing 
the specter of Islamic radicalism in the region and around the world. And our guest today, Elon Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Security, American Policy, sorry, take it back. Elon Berman, Senior Vice President of the American Foreign Policy Council, is the perfect person to address radical thinking. An expert on regional security in the Middle East, in Central Asia, and the Russian Federation, he has consulted for the CIA, as well as the Departments of State and Defense, and provided assistance on foreign policy and national security issues to a range of government agencies and congressional offices. Elon is a member of the Associated Faculty of Missouri State University's Department of Defense and Strategic Studies. A frequent writer and commentator, he has appeared everywhere in all the media, in all the countries you think he should and you think he would. He is author with Michael J. Waller of a book called Dismantling Tyranny, Transitioning Beyond Totalitarian Regimes. And he's also the author of a book called The War of Ideas, Theology, Interpretation, and Power in the Muslim World. That makes him the perfect person to talk to us about radical ideology, what it is, how we got here, and we hope how we get out. Elon Berman, the floor is yours. Oh, thanks, Shoshana. No, I, I, I appreciate it. And uh, I, I would love to take credit for writing all of Wars of Ideas. And, and it's wars, plural, because I, as I'm going to try to explain, what we're actually talking about is we're talking about multiple contests for legitimacy that are taking place in the Muslim world right now, right? Every, uh, every country spanning from Africa to, uh, to the Indo-Pacific that is majority Muslim has a different way of racking and stacking the, um, the threat to legitimacy posed by groups like the Islamic State, groups like Al-Qaeda. Um, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, but there's a lot that we can learn from. But anyway, uh, the the book itself, uh, I, I only had the privilege of, of editing it. I had, uh, you know, enormous input from all sorts of really interesting people um, who are, you know, working on these files in their respective countries. So I'll get to that in a second. But the, the, the frame that I want to start with is uh, the fact that America increasingly is out of the counterterrorism business. And what I mean by this is that uh, in the days after September 11th, um, we had this massive reorientation of uh, strategic focus in the United States and counterinsurgency, special operations, low intensity conflict became the coin of the realm, right? It became the sort of the, the organizing principle behind our national security strategy and the animating principle behind our defense budgets. And after, and uh, there's been a real sea change in this, and especially after um, uh, the uh, dismantlement of the Islamic State's self-declared caliphate in Iraq and Syria. But what we've seen is we've seen this massive reorientation of U.S. policy. Um, and now it's fair to say that great power competition has displaced what used to be known as the global war on terror as an organizing principle. And the practical effects of this are, are pretty profound because what we're looking at is altered military budgets because more and more combatant commands in the U.S. military are focusing on conventional force on force competition with China, Russia, whoever, um, and less on uh, asymmetric warfare. And it's also had a the practical effect of um, changing the, the priority, the urgency of the counterterrorism, counterextremism mission. So if you go and go back and read the uh, October 2022 Biden national security strategy, it barely makes a mention of counterterrorism. It's almost like the file is an unfunded mandate now, which in, in many ways it is here in the United States. 
But Islamism, uh, Islamic extremism, right? Islamism, political, the political mobilization of radical Islamic ideas for uh, strategic purposes is an enduring challenge. And it's also making a comeback. And over the last several years, you, there's really been uh, a number of incidents that have hammered home the point that not only are Islamists surviving, they're actually thriving in this new sort of crowded environment, right? The first is the defeat of the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria, right? On the surface, that was a victory for the United States and its coalition partners, right? undoubtedly. But it was also not the end of the Islamic State. The analogy I always used to uh, use because uh, everybody with a child can sort of relate to this is uh, what happens when a toddler squeezes a tube of toothpaste really hard, right? It comes out the top and it comes out the bottom. And that's precisely what's happened with uh, the Islamic State and its constituent parts and the foreign fighters that it managed to mobilize during its half decade in, pro in global prominence. They have, uh, a lot of them have been incarcerated, a lot of them have been killed, but a lot of them have migrated to different theaters. Theaters like Africa, for example, or Central Asia, where you're beginning to see the toothpaste migrate in different places that are actually harder to track than uh, a consolidated caliphate was. Um, so a great sort of empirical data point that's useful to, in terms of highlighting this is in Africa. Um, in Africa, what you have is a fourfold increase in uh, incidents of Islamic extremism in sub-Saharan Africa, particularly in places like Mozambique, right? Because what you have is you have ISIS affiliates or Al-Qaeda affiliates that have migrated out of the Middle East into the African continent and are migrating south, right? Creating serious security instability. But also, it's a trend that's largely not paid attention to here in Washington. The second uh, sort of dynamic that's really sort of fueled this is the our rapid, frankly, undignified withdrawal from Afghanistan. Because the lesson that we gave by allowing, and I use that word advisedly, we allowed the Taliban to surge back to power, right, through political decision making, but also through this sort of this botched uh, understanding of the stability of the Afghan state, we created a uh, an example of a successful long-term Islamist insurgency, right? The Taliban message to the world is that if you, you can wait out the United States, right? Just like we waited out the Soviet Union, we waited out the United States. Over time, they'll give up the will to fight and the battlefield, right? The playing field will be ours, right? And that's precisely the inspiring message that uh, Islamist groups the world over have taken from the uh, from <clears throat> the Afghan return, uh, the uh, Taliban return to power in Afghanistan. The third is obviously October seventh, and sort of as a as a seminal organizing principle, uh, the it highlighted frankly, surprising power and resilience and organizational heft on the part of groups like Hamas. There's the the not insignificant potential of uh, for expansion of, of the battlefields, a blurring, uh, as the Israelis say, a blurring of the strategic arenas to encapsulate the Israeli North, which is, you know, where Iran's chief terrorist proxy, uh, Hezbollah, uh, is located, is situated. So, this is still an event, a series of events that's spinning out over time. A lot of it depends, um, a, a lot of how powerful it is and how enduring the lesson is depends on how the Israelis respond, which is frankly why it's so important that the Israelis are given the, breathe, the political breathing room to really discredit and dismantle and put out of business the uh, Hamas, because, other, because if it's not, 
remember Hamas is the Palestinian branch of the Muslim Brotherhood, the destabilizing example that Hamas's insurgency uh, has on everybody from Morocco to the United Arab Emirates to Bahrain to Saudi Arabia, right? They all have uh, branches of the Muslim Brotherhood. So th this is a really enormous uh, and important moment, right? Far more than you're sort of understanding if you just read the popular media. And the fourth trend, which I, I think is really uh, very significant, is the sort of what we're, the, what we're looking at in terms of the media environment, right? What we have now uh, is a extremely crowded, extremely unaccountable media environment where extremist messages are resonating. And they're resonating as a result of, uh, you know, poor practices on the part of uh, platforms like Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and Telegram and what have you. But they're also resonating because it is the, the, the barriers to entry into the media used to be really high. You used to have to you know, write for a newspaper or appear on television or whatever it is, right? There's not that many outlets. Now the barriers for entry are very, very low. Anybody, any insurgent can set up a social media account, can set up uh, a, you know, a YouTube account. And if they're deplatformed, they just set up another one. And so the Islamist message, far from being diminished as a result of counterterrorism successes, is actually broader than it has been uh, in uh, sort of any time in recent history, because there are so many avenues that they can exploit to get their message out in terms of recruitment, in terms of ideological mobilization, in terms of inspiration, right? And this is something that we really haven't gotten our hands around. But we're, not, as I said, sort of at the outset, we're not even really paying attention to this because we're more and more focused on great power competition and the challenges posed by a rising China and the challenges posed by a neo-imperialist Russia and, and sort of, you know, other ancillary things. But this is, this domain, if it's being ignored by the West, it's not being ignored by countries in the Muslim world. And so what you have now, if you look across the landscape of the Muslim world, right, two billion people, fifth of humanity, um, you have what I would call a distributed fight in country after country, all the way from Africa to Southeast Asia, what you have is local governments that are grappling with the challenge intellectually that Islamist ideas pose, but also the challenge of their political legitimacy. And they're responding to them in different ways. So I'll, I'll just give you a couple of examples because I think it's necessary to um, sort of, uh, for people to, to explain just how fertile this field is. Um, in Egypt, for example, um, and, and Egypt has uh, basically a, a twofold Islamist problem. They have an internal Islamist problem uh, posed by the Muslim Brotherhood, and they have an external Islamist problem posed by uh, the Islamic State franchise in the Sinai. Um, and, and then they have, you know, Libya next door, which is also not, not, not great for them for, in terms of their security, but th this is sort of the triumvirate that they're, they're looking at. Um, the way they've addressed it is um, they have harnessed a, a, a very significant part of the authority and the legitimacy of the office of the Grand Mufti of Egypt to uh, and use scholarship from universities like Al-Azhar University, which is the sort of the seat of Islamic, uh, of, uh, Islamic learning uh, in Egypt, um, to build a series, continuous series of messages couched in religious edicts, in fatwas, um, that uh, progressively discredit uh, ISIS messaging and also set the guidelines for Egyptian society. Now, we're not talking about uh, Egyptian society in which, you know, democracy and transparent institutions are the order of the day, right? Let's be clear. But what we're looking at is a serious state-driven effort by the Egyptians to marginalize and 
to, de, uh, to render illegitimate interpretations of the Islamic faith that they don't control. Um, in uh, the United Arab Emirates, they are, the UAE is enormously economically prosperous and they have become a quarterback of sorts for um, uh, counter radicalization and counter extremism measures. They have their own center uh, for monitoring uh, international extremism. Uh, it's called Hedaya, but they're also uh, essentially like an angel investor. And so they're going to poorer countries in the global South uh, and they are paying for those governments to set up their own monitoring centers so, so that the co collectively uh, the Muslim world has a better sense of uh, you know, what's being said on the internet, uh, who's mobilizing, who's, who's up, who's down, and sort of what the operational environment looks like. In Bahrain, they've adopted a two-track approach. Um, they're looking, uh, they have a, the King Hamad Center for uh, Global uh, uh, Religious Tolerance, which is essentially a global convening center where you can, they're doing a, a whole bunch of interfaith dialogues. And then they're inoculating the, their own domestic population against external extremism by raising awareness among school-aged children to uh, radical tropes, to the destabilizing effects on home and on family. Um, in Indonesia, they have uh, something entirely different, right? Indonesia has something called the Pankasia. Pankasia is sort of the five principles, it's the, which cumulatively make up the charter of the country, which as one expert uh, said it to me not long ago, which is a great way of putting it, values nation state over caliphate, right? So uh, Indonesia is a deeply religious country. In fact, the only way you can get in trouble in terms of nationality uh, in Indonesia is if on your nationality card, you put atheist or no religion. Right? Everything else is fine. But as part of that very religious, very devout society, it's incumbent upon them to explain that religious uh, identification can't come at the expense of state stability. So they have these mass movements. One is called the Nadatul Ulama or NU. Another is called the Muhammadiyah. These are massive movements. And when I mean massive, the, the NU has something between 50 million and 90 million uh, members. The Muhammadiyah is more modest. It's something like 30 or 40 million members, right? But these are countries, right? The size of countries, basically. Um, and they are there to provide shaping forces to explain how Islam can coexist with a nationalist ethos in their country, right? And so anyway, the list goes on. But these are really good examples about how one size doesn't fit all. Everybody from their local perspective is trying to figure out the best way to tackle what is effectively a common problem a common problem in terms of radicalization and a common problem in terms of leeching legitimacy away from state authorities. So this gets us frankly to where we are um, because you know, we Americans are very, um, uh, very sort of uh, centered on the centrality of the United States in, in almost any global conflict that you conceive of, right? And, and for, for very good reason. Um, so September 11th uh, famously, happened in uh, in the United States, so it was all about us. But if you delve deeper, if you look at the writings of Osama bin Laden, you look at the speeches of Islamic radicals, what you realize is that Osama bin Laden wasn't talking to us. He wasn't lashing out at us in order to teach us a lesson. He was lashing out at us in order to send a message to the rest of the Muslim world, which is that his brand of intolerant Islam was ascended. We were just the example that he was trying to make. And so that's I think it's really important to think about when we think about uh, what we can do in this new distributed fight, because America is a Judeo-Christian nation. 
right? And, and both bureaucratically and intellectually, I, we're not the optimal spear carrier for this effort, but we have allies that are. And the first order of business is to get smarter on what all these other countries are doing, uh, how it's working or how it's not working, who's performing well, who's managed to marginalize and really discredit Islamist voices um, and empowering them, right? The one thing that we have without peer is the power of our purse as a shaper of society, right? We've done that with, with we've done that with a lot of failures, but we've done that with inordinate success in, in a whole bunch of places, right? Everywhere from Japan to Germany, right? I mean, you can sort of go through and you look, right? American values, when they accompany American aid, right? And that's a different conversation because we've sort of decoupled the two of late, but when they, and when they're accompanied by a vision can really move mountains. So for us, I think the most optimal role here is to be an amplifier of moderate voices. And in order to do that, we actually have to identify who the partners are, right? Who the countries are that are actually doing the yeoman's work in this field. Uh, there, I, I can't remember which general it was, but but famously, uh, a, a U.S. general, very smart guy, clearly, um, said it takes a network to defeat a network. And this is effectively what we're talking about, right? Islamists are networked in new and really dangerous ways. And what you need is a network of moderate voices to push back against them. It's not enough to scream at Twitter or scream at Facebook that they need to deplatform the the supreme leader of Iran. Although I'm happy to scream at Twitter and Facebook. And by the way, um, uh, that's at least that campaign has been at least partially successful over the last couple of weeks. Um, what we actually need is we need to figure out who is really making it a serious line of effort to confront intolerant voices sort of on, on a number of fronts in, in their own governments. This is a challenge that frankly, we're not meeting, right? We're not serious about this. We're not serious about the war of ideas um, in terms of counterterrorism policy. We are in many ways a victim of our own success. Because when you think about it, when you think about the last uh, two decades, two decades plus, the war on terror has been mostly kinetic. It's been mostly Afghanistan. It's been mostly Iraq. It's been mostly the campaign to defeat ISIS, right? These are kinetic engagements. These are military engagements. And we have at what, the, what the defense planners say call escalation dominance. Our military is better resourced. It's better trained, better equipped than Islamist insurgents. And so we've had success after success, even though uh, politics, like in the case of uh, Afghanistan, has uh, conspired to, to make those uh, successes uh, either rolled back entirely or more modest. But on the battlefield, there's no question that we are uh, supreme. But the battlefield is not the central front. The battleground of ideas is the central front. That's how these groups have longevity. That's how they mobilize new members. That's how they inspire additional followers. That's how they become sticky and they don't go out of business. And so the next administration or the one after or the one after that, at some point, the United States has to get serious about the war of ideas in a material way, right? To provide not just top level attention, but also resources. And when it does, it would be really good if we knew what our allies and what our partners and even what countries that are not yet our allies and partners, but are still doing constructive work in this domain, what they're doing, how they're moving the ball forward, because it's not a fight that's just about us. It's about uh, the entirety uh, of the Muslim world. It's about the disposition of the Islamic soul. So I'll stop there. Okay, you've given me about 5,000 questions. So, <laughs> so let's start 
with you mentioned UAE and Indonesia both having mechanisms by which they teach their people. Um, first of all, it's a little bit about state and religion and the difference between the two and, and how moderate ideas are important. How did they come to that recognition? UAE had to make a decision at some point that this all was going right over the cliff. How did they decide that? And then what was the first thing they did about it? I know, so, by the way, that the Saudis dumped off the Wahhabis. So, I mean, they come to an understanding. Right. And, and I think that's where you can actually make up the most constructive ground, right? Because what we're actually talking about is, is rational decision making that's being driven by uh, real world constraints or real world desires. And in the case of the Saudis, in the case of the UAE, it's all about prosperity and market dynamics, right? Very clearly, the Saudis figured out that Wahhabism was a cul-de-sac intellectually, right? That you could not progress. You could not attract foreign direct investment. You could not do all the things that the House of Saud wants to do to stabilize the country, right? To bring it into a post-oil era by being tethered to this very extreme, very intolerant, in the best case, very exclusionary ideology, right? And so that shift, and that shift happened, by the way, I mean, it's happening now in Saudi Arabia. It happened much earlier in the United Arab Emirates. But in every country, it's been that recognition, right? And in some countries that are less well-performing, it's taken a while to get there. So a great example, I didn't use it just for the sake of time, but there's some really interesting, profound things that are happening in Central Asia. Because in Central Asia, the you know uh, five majority Muslim former Soviet republics, uh, their population, right, cumulatively something like 58 million people, uh, their population was formerly atheist for something like seven and a half decades. They didn't really know what to make of Islam. And because they were in many, uh, in many cases slow to decouple from the Russian Federation, from the successor of the Soviet Union, they didn't really perform well economically. And so the, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. When you're a party apparatchik and you find yourself in charge of a post-Soviet state, your first impulse is to do what you did when the Soviet Union was still around, which is to take your political opponents, to incarcerate them, to marginalize them, to sort of push them to the margins of politics. And time after time in places like uh, Turkmenistan, in places like Uzbekistan, what they found was that's actually not the optimal approach because what happens is population that understands economic prosperity and how they don't have it, population that understands freedom of speech and that they don't have it, tends to get radicalized. And when these groups, groups like Hezbollah Tahrir, for example, are pushed the margins of Central Asian politics, they become a conveyor belt for the radicalization of the population. So what's happening in Central Asia now is something entirely different, right? They've turned the formula on their head and they're trying to reclaim Islamic heritage. And what they're doing is, you know, there's a great book by my colleague, Fred Starr, called The Lost Enlightenment. And it's all about uh, Islamic successes and achievements in uh, math and sciences during what is largely a forgotten period, right? Middle ages to, to the advent of Tamerlane, you have almost a millennia of uh, real progress where Southwest Asia, Central Asia was sort of the seat of innovation, right? And we've sort of forgotten this. And because these countries have been behind the Iron Curtain for such a long time, they've sort of forgotten this history as well. So in a lot of places, in places like Uzbekistan, they are trying to reclaim that history. They're setting up museums to moderate Islamic scholars, uh, to uh, Islamic theologians, Islamic mathematicians. Uh, you know, they're really leaning into heredity 
because the heredity is something that they feel like they have an upper hand against the extremists on, right? So it's all that, right? It's all the, the sort of becoming more comfortable in your political situation so you can liberalize and open up. And it's also market forces. Now that requires though, if the United States is going to be helpful, it requires that the United States be a little bit tolerant of A, who they were before, B, mistakes they made coming down the pike, and then be encouraging of the future. And I say this this way because I'm looking, for example, at Niger. Niger had a coup. One of the reasons Niger had a coup was because the military said the government was not fighting, physically fighting um, ISIS in Niger and that people were getting overrun and people were getting killed. And the military had lost its patience with that. And I think I understand that. The US government response to that as it was to the coup in Mali was to say, well, you guys are not democratic and because you're not democratic, we're not gonna help you. We don't, we need a rethinking of our relations with these people and how to be helpful. I mean, it seems to me the answer to Niger is, okay, you did that. Now, how are we gonna help you for the long-term to, to get where you wanna be? No, I, listen, I, I think exactly right. And, and one of the, the most profound, but also frankly pernicious things that's happened in terms of US foreign policy is that we have begun focusing on revolution rather than evolution, right? So if you think back two decades and you think back to, you know, things like the Millennium Challenge account and, and sort of, you know, the way we condition foreign aid based upon greater transparency, anti-corruption, things like that, that's all evolutionary. That's not an expectation that they're going to flip their system overnight. It's an expectation that if you're going to be a partner of the United States, you have to be more reliable along these indices. Somehow, in the intervening years, we've gone into this messianic state where countries that don't measure up to our standards of transparency and democracy are subject to uh, essentially an assumption of refusal. Oh, you're not democratic enough. Oh, you're not, uh, you're not pluralistic enough. Oh, you have different views on the sanctity of the family, of marriage, of gay rights, of sort of all these different things, right? And it's true. Um, in a lot of places, including in places like in Nigeria and Liberia and Mali, whatever it is, they have a very different way of racking and stacking the social compact, right? And, and also uh, problematic in many ways uh, for, for the American psyche. But what you have to understand is that if you choose not to decide, you've also made a vote. Meaning if you choose not to give them aid, not to help them with their Islamist problem, they still have an Islamist problem. And they're going to look for other allies. They're going to look for paramilitary forces from Russia, right? What used to be known as the Wagner Group, which is now known as the Africa Corps. Um, they're going to look at uh, repression technology from China, which is more than happy to sell it to them because it's part of their Belt and Road. And they're leaning in on investments in the global south, right? So this is a competition, right? It's not just an intellectual competition. It's also geopolitical competition. And sometimes I find that our policy has become so strident and so... Uh, unhelpfully values-based that it doesn't really take these countries as they are. It only it sort of chides them for not being what we want them to be. So a little side trip, right? We did the same thing to El Salvador. What Bukele did in El Salvador is certainly not democratic. He arrested thousands and thousands of people. They sit in their underwear in a prison camp over there, but the people like it because the people are safer. And they just returned him to power with a very large majority. We said, that's not democratic. You have to treat the criminals in a way that we approve of. People of El Salvador said, no, he doesn't have to. He has to treat the people of El Salvador in a way that we approve of. So 
we don't only do it under the with the Islamic radicalism side. We do it with things that we see as non-democratic. And here I'm going to fold a question in from a listener who says, why has France been so unsuccessful in their former colonies? Fold that into the problems France is having at home with Islamic radicalism and the difference between France, say, and Hungary. Sure. Um, well, you question for you? Yeah, no, 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 it's, it's a lot. But 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 you get you gave the example of El Salvador. I would actually give you what I think is actually a better um, sort of illustration of this mismatch, which is the Palestinians themselves, right? What you have, the problem that we have, uh, and, and it, it's not a Republican problem or a Democratic problem. It sort of it spans successive administrations. We've become convinced that democracy is an endpoint instead of a process. So the metric of democracy for the Palestinians is have elections, right? And this has come up again and again. By the way, in the start of the Biden administration, there was a major internal push, and, and my friend Jonathan Shanzer has sort of written about this and talked about this, major internal push on the part of the Biden NSC to push for Palestinian elections until they figured out almost too late that an election under the current conditions without anything else changing would result in Hamas winning, not only in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. And so they roll back their demands. But that tells you that democracy isn't actually, uh, it's not about process, it's about evolution, right? So things that really make a difference, really move the needle and move you towards greater democracy are things like de-radicalization of textbooks, are things like more transparency, anti-corruption, right? These are things, frankly, that we haven't paid nearly enough attention to. And it's things that, that these countries, uh, at least some of them, are beginning to understand really make a difference, really move the needle on figuring out uh, how to gain legitimacy vis-a-vis -vis their Islamist opponents. With regard to Europe, I think we're in a different place. Um, I mean, what you had uh, in the aftermath of uh, the Syrian civil war in particular, but even so, even sort of extending uh, over the last couple of years during the pandemic and, and uh, up to today, is you had a um, massive, uh, presumption of acceptance on the part of European societies, definitely Western Euro and Central European societies, of migrants from the Middle East and from Africa. Um, and most of them, right, let, let, let's be clear, most of them are economic migrants. They're not politically motivated. They, want, they came because they wanted a better life. But there is a sizable minority that is problematic because it is extremely politicized, it is radicalized. And then these countries, have compounded the problem by creating barriers to the entry of these people into society. So France is a great example because France is perhaps has the most glaring disparity between uh, Muslim economic migrants and French citizens, right? Where, where you really, Muslim economic migrants are very much treated as second-class citizens. And that has had a radicalizing effect. By the way, radicalizing effect that sets in over time, because if you notice, this is all generational. The first generation of migrants understand that they're better off in their country of sort of the new adopted country than they were in their home country. And they're not radical, but it's their children who are already accustomed to those better conditions and begin to discover uh, barriers to, to further entry, to further elevation that become really radicalized. And that's sort of what you've seen in Germany. That's what you've seen in England. Uh, is what you're seeing in England. It's what you're seeing in France. So this is a real problem. And I, I can tell you just on, on a completely different subject, I was in working on a different project. I was in um, uh, Scandinavia uh, about a year ago, 
uh, my first takeaway was that you should never go to Sweden uh, in February at all, ever. Uh, but my second takeaway was that the Swedes were having this real important gut check moment where they were, they had just figured out that their immigration and absorption policies were bankrupt. They had just figured out that they didn't assimilate them. They had an open door policy. They hadn't assimilated Muslim migrants well, right? There were, there were upticks in crime. They were underperforming in, on along economic and educational indices, but they didn't know what to do about it yet. And I think that example, the Swedish example, actually applies to a lot of countries in Europe. They have figured out that they have a headache. They just don't know what the aspirin is yet. Okay, so you mentioned assimilation. The presumption in the United States always has been that immigrants assimilate. Um, it was basically written into the founding documents. They weren't even looking for immigrants. They just wanted people like themselves here. Um, and for a long time, that was true. And people did, and my grandparents did. Is it true, though, that all migrants come to assimilate or want to assimilate? So no matter how hard Sweden tries or France tries or the laws that they make for equality, if the immigrants come and say, wait a minute, we want to live in France and we want to have the benefits of the French economics and the French security, but we don't want to be French. We want to be who we are. Right. Then you can't win that assimilation battle. And it's going to lead me to my next question, but take okay. that. No, 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 no. So, so I, I think that's exactly right. And, and frankly, we're seeing that in real time in places like London and Chicago and on the campus of Harvard University, right? Where, where you have a situation where there are people who want to avail themselves of the benefits of open societies, but in the process want to remake societies based upon certain ideological uh, fixations, I would say. Um, a great response to this is, for example, what the German parliament did uh, a couple months ago. The German parliament said that under our national law, uh, Hamas is considered a terrorist organization and we consider aid and comfort, right, aid, providing aid and comfort to Hamas to be rallies that extol the virtues of October 7th and, you know, pronounce slogans like uh, from the river to the sea. And if you do that and you are a resident, not a citizen, you are a resident, you are a, uh, sort of a guest in our country, that is grounds for expulsion. And almost overnight, Germany ceased having protests. Uh, I think the French have done something similar, uh, a little bit more problematically, but it's glaring in its absence here. Uh, I know that there are senators, uh, senators like Marco Rubio have sort of talked about this, but it rubs up against, you know, uh, sort of our own idea of America being an open door society. But what you're getting at is precisely right, which is that there, there are cohorts of immigrants, like my parents, like your grandparents, that came to the United States seeking a better life and were willing to adapt themselves to the society that they uh, uh, that they were absorbed into. And there are other groups that because their entry is easy, because their entry is subsidized, because their sort of their opportunities are, are limitless. Um, I mean, we can sort of go on a tangent about immigration policy, we won't, but uh, because their barriers for entry to use a, a previous term are so low, um, they don't feel like they need to assimilate. In fact, they feel like the country that it's absorbing them needs to assimilate to them. And figuring out what the proper metric is, how to reestablish the ethos that America is a melting pot, but America being a melting pot means that your ideology doesn't get to come in and tell us what the melting pot is, right? The whole virtue of the melting pot is that it's a whole bunch of ideologies and they all coexist peacefully. I don't think we we have quite have figured out that formula in the in the current moment. 
somebody said it's not exactly a melting pot. It's actually a fondue pot where you have fondue and then there are little pieces of this and pieces of that, all different pieces that jump into the cheese and, you know, cook together, um, which I thought was actually pretty smart because we have a basis for the laws and the customs of the United States and then it accommodates various people. However, you're really talking, or we're really talking about wars of ideas. And if we want the United States to be um, the strong man in the war of ideas, we have to be, um, what would you say, secure in our, our ideas. We have to believe in our own founding and our own principles and our own guiding lights. And I think it is less and less obvious that we're willing to do that these days. Polls that you take of younger people, this is where you get trouble on our campuses, they're not sure that they believe in what the United States was for all those other years. Are we in danger of losing our ability? Never mind if we're going to spend the money or actually do it. Are we losing our ability to mobilize our own forces, our own people? So, so I, to me, that's one of the most profound questions, because I, I think it's very clear. The reason Vladimir Putin, long before uh, his war of aggression against Ukraine, his current war of aggression against Ukraine, was able to essentially punk the American political elites by writing an op-ed in the New York Times talking about Russia as the champion of, uh, of conservative values, of traditional values, was precisely for that reason, right? He sensed an opening. He sensed an America that wasn't willing to fight, or at least was less willing to fight for its ideas, for its ideals. And if you don't stand for something, you fall for everything. Uh, and a lot of the sort of the zigging and the zagging that we've seen in uh, U.S. foreign policy of late, I, I, I actually think it's it's very much attribu attributable to that. I'm a I'm a old fashioned soul, so I, I still think America is a shining city on a hill. But there was a re there's a reason why we were depicted as that uh, during the Cold War because we had a comparative advantage over closed systems, and we are less uh, less able to recognize those advantages and certainly less willing to communicate them to captive populations, right? And, and so the persuasive potential, and you can, by the way, you can sort of see this in, in how lackluster our public diplomacy is uh, towards the Muslim world, uh, towards uh, sort of all sorts of foreign audiences. Um, it's that, you know, we don't feel like we have a story to tell anymore. And to me, that, like, that's a real tragedy. Yes, there was a time that Radio Free Europe and Radio Liberty were things that people treasured on both sides, that we treasured our ability to send that message. And there were people certainly who, wanted that message. So shifting back then to the Middle East, um, because we could spend hours talking about the shortcomings of American diplomacy, um, and then we'll just both be depressed. Shifting back, one of the things that we've done is um, kind of offloaded some of this to NGOs. And specifically, I'm talking here about UNRWA. We are the funder, we are the primary funder of UNRWA. We have been until January of this year. Second is the European Union, the UN system, other Western countries. And UNRWA, it turns out, was working for the bad guys. How do we, and what I mean by that very specifically is UNRWA was preparing textbooks that promoted the line that Hamas wanted promoted and promoted the line that um, the Palestinian Authority wanted promoted. And those are not things that are congruent with American interests, Western democratic interests. So that's what it's doing. How do we get a handle on that? I mean, it does seem correct to have pulled our funding from UNRWA, despite the hardship that it causes for certain people right at this minute. But how do we go back and build a structure that helps people and helps introduce them to the concepts we want to spread? It's our money. 
All right. No, no. And, 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 and we, we need to make sure, uh, right, in this constrained environment that our money is spent well, right? We don't want to exacerbate the problem. Uh, so I think the answer is twofold, right? One is very clearly institutional reform. And this is something that, that multiple senior elders in our political constellation have talked about, right? Famously, Newt Gingrich chaired a commission on uh, a decade ago, a decade and a half ago on UN reform and went nowhere. Um, but uh, it's all that. It's looking at not just expanding the Security Council, right? That's sort of whenever anybody talks about UN reform, they talk about making the UN Security Council more democratic. And they fundamentally misread the fact that the UN system, when it was set up uh, after the Second World War, was built for inertia. It wasn't built for speed. It was built for if the Chinese did something crazy or the Soviets did something crazy, we could veto it and vice versa, right? Um, so the UN Security Council, right? Uh, spoiler alert, the UN Security Council is not going to expand. But that doesn't mean that the UN couldn't be reformed, right? You couldn't, that doesn't mean that you couldn't have constituent agencies that are more accountable. You can demand more accountability. The US has, I mean, we've pulled our funding from UNRWA, but we haven't pulled our funding from the UN. The US is the single largest contributor to the UN. And we could use this if we had <clears throat> a uh, very sort of vocal, uh, serious voice at Turtle Bay advocating for this. Uh, which we don't right now. I'm not a huge fan of, of, of the current uh, uh, envoy to the United Nations. Uh, using our economic investment as leverage to compel precisely the type of transparency that would force UNRWA, and by the way, not only UNRWA, right? UNRWA is sort of, uh, is an easy target because it's so egregious, but there's many, many institutions, many, many specialized agencies on the part of the UN that could use a good bleaching. Um, and uh, we have the ability to compel at least some movement in that direction. What we don't have yet is the political will to do that. Um, so I, I think that's the first answer. Um, but I mean, fodder for a larger conversation. Okay. Try and bring the circle someplace. I don't know. There's got to be a beginning and an end to a circle, right? Right. <laughs> there are people in the West particularly in the United States, I think particularly right now in the United States, who are not comfortable with the concept of a war of ideas. So you laid out very clearly to us how one side in this war um, puts itself in front of people and brings its ideas to people and inculcates those ideas into those people. Um, and in the absence of countervailing theories and philosophies and people and spokesmen and salespeople, that's what they do. So I have two questions. I probably have 10, but I'll go with two. First of all, does the free exchange of ideas work to their benefit or to our benefit primarily? Yes, you open the window and yes, you can have democratic thinking and modern thinking and rights of women and all that stuff comes into these people. But then free communications also allows the other side, number one. And number two, what should we be selling first? If you're going to go out and sell the concepts that we theoretically believe are important. What's number one? What do we tell these people? Right. What? Well, listen. Uh, I think the. Uh, I mean, there's a lot there, but but my sense is first of all, we, the conversation that we had before about knowing what we're selling, is hugely important. Right. It's not just that we're selling Coca-Cola and blue jeans and Britney Spears and whatever it is. It's it's something deeper. It's something more visceral. It's something that during the Cold War, when you had this very stark divide between free societies and unfree societies, was very intuitive. It's less intuitive now. And it's less intuitive now, in part because, frankly, the Chinese model has been so successful. 
um, a, a great example uh, for um, uh, for everybody who's watching and everybody who watch later is is Africa. Um, Africa is not populated by democracies, right? I know it's a shocker, but it's not populated by democracy. What it is populated by is a domestic population, right, in, in various countries that's on the move. And what I mean by this is Africa is the world's uh, youngest continent. I think the median age on in Africa, right, across the continent is 19 and a half years old. And Africa is the continent with the most robust birth rate. And so the population of Africa is going to more than double by 2050. Right, and it's going to be it's going to be pretty uh, as a share of global attention and global politics. It's going to become increasingly important. If you are a dictator, a strongman uh, in Africa, you have a problem. You have an immediacy problem. Right, uh, you want to stay in power, and the most dangerous person, animal creature in your ecosystem is the unemployed or underemployed young male. Right, we've sort of learned this uh, in in the context of the Middle East. The young, largely, not largely unemployed, but, but, but uh, significantly underemployed population of Africa right across the board is restless. They want things. They want things like greater telecom. They want things like, like greater access to markets. They want first world amenities and they want an improvement in their own situation. And they will back whoever gives it to them. And that's why you have a, a fairly healthy um, trade, then this sort of doesn't get a lot of, uh, a lot of press, but um, one of the key dynamics of foreign fighter funding, the, the funding flows that went back and forth during, uh, during the heyday of the Islamic State was remittances that were paid by foreign fighters that were you know, getting paychecks from, from ISIS because they were working for ISIS and they would send back to their families. Why? Because their governments were underperforming. They were essentially creating social security for their own families, right? And that's what makes, and, and so what you have is you have to figure out a good mechanism to uh, competing, not just on ideas, but really providing alternatives for these governments, right? It starts with maybe not lecturing them so much, maybe taking them as they are and trying to improve them rather than telling them they don't match some imaginary criteria that the bureaucrat in Foggy Bottom has figured out. Right. But it extends to having viable alternatives. And, and here yeah, we started with China. I think, you know, it's, it's fitting that we end with China. Um, the great power competition thing actually matters a great deal. Uh, a great example. Right. So the example I always give is imagine you're a sub-Saharan African strongman. And for whatever reason, for your own personal reasons, you've decided that you don't want Chinese uh, companies like Huawei in your telecom sector. You've decided, you know, for security purposes, maybe you're listening to the Europeans, you know, who are beginning to divest in a pretty uh, healthy way, that, that this is not what you want, but you still need telecom. And so when the U.S. State Department comes to your country and has the top level meetings like Secretary Blinken does all over the world these days, um, and you ask them, OK, we're not going to go with Huawei. What's the alternative? What are you offering? If we don't have an answer, if we don't have a ready answer or a ready strategic plan, we're not even in the game. And so it's a question of competition, right? The sort of the war, the war is very much a war. It's a war of ideas in terms of legitimacy, but it's also a war of vision because America increasingly doesn't have a vision for how these societies should be shaped. A lot of these local governments do, and they're shaping them in different ways. But the sooner we understand what they're doing 
and try to figure out if it, it's in our interest or it's not in our interest, the sooner we can be a, a healthy amplifier of what they're trying to do. So you've really outlined a multi-pronged approach about economics, about how we approach governments that don't meet our standards and how we deal with governments that are not what we think they ought to be, in quotes. Um, and also how you open societies to new ideas, different ideas, and how societies are frightened by things. And right. somehow the fear can be turned either against our Western interests or it can be turned toward our Western interests. Um, I suspect that part of what happened in Saudi Arabia and UAE was a fear of the crashing of the Arab Spring. They watched it in all of the North African countries, I would say the Obama administration's um, record in the Arab Spring is terrifying if you're a sheikh in Saudi Arabia or UAE or Bahrain. So what we really need is better thinking, but it also seems to me that we come back right back to where we started, that if we are not self-confident, if we are not sure that what we have is worth selling or giving or sharing or any way you want to put it, um, we're not going to do those things that you just outlined. We're not going to have an answer to the question. If you don't take Chinese what are you going to take? We, well, we don't have anything. You know, we just want you to have an election, please. And that'll fix it. So no, no, and, and I, I think that's exactly right. And I think that's the, the that's the perfect place to sort of to, to end on, because what you're really talking about is that there's no substitute for seriousness. Right. What you have is adversaries of the United States, adversaries of uh, sort of Western civilization more broadly that have come to the conclusion, correctly or incorrectly, based upon our recent practice our recent foreign policy that of europe right sort of uh the the increasing uh, i would say fragmentation of societies in the west that they can outlast right their model can outlast that america will leave right afghanistan is the, the best example of this right that and and right I, I understand that all politics is local and as much as uh the biden administration gets a bad rap for pulling out of afghanistan uh, prematurely or uh, improperly, as it as it should, by the way, um, it bears noting that the Trump administration was planning to do the same thing because they were looking at the same polling numbers, right? That the Amer that the American people had lost confidence in what was increasingly an open ended mission with no end in sight, right? It was sort of leeching resources, but that persistence, that staying power, is crucial. It doesn't mean, by the way, that that we shouldn't optimize our policies, that we shouldn't figure out how to do things better, but what I, I'm really concerned about is the increasing bend that you see on the right, but also certain segments of the left in the American body politic to, that leans towards isolation, because it's the reverse of that. It's not, it's not serious, because our, the world is interconnected. Countries around the world are looking to the United States for leadership. And if America is found wanting, they're going to look for other alternatives. And that other alter alternative could be China, or it could be Islamists that provide you and your family with the resources that you need in the here and now, right? And neither option is a world that I want to live. Okay, so I'm not going to, we're, we're coming to the end here, you know that. Yeah. I'm not going to let you off though, because <laughs> <Okay>. we, and, <laughs> and on a positive note, and everything that you have said essentially is depressing. So I will put to you a proposition. If the United States needs to shore up its staying power credentials and prove itself a reliable ally, does that argue for more U.S. support for Israel, more U.S. support for the Abraham Accords countries, and a line in the sand as regards people who would destroy either Israel or the Abraham Accords? Is that where we need to focus our attention? On staying? Oh, 
I, I think 100%. And, and not only that, right? It's, it's a, a sort of, you know, a greater support for Ukraine. Uh, it's greater support for Taiwan. It's greater support for systems that, even though they're imperfect, are more like us than the other. Right. It's OK. By the way, it's OK to pick winners and losers in contests. And we somehow have gotten into this idea that like we're not allowed to, to decide who we like more. But ultimately, the, the way the way I like to think about geopolitics is like the you know high noon at the OK Corral. Right. When you when you watch a movie and there's high noon at the OK Corral, you're rooting for one guy over another guy. Inevitably. Right. That's the way the movie's set up. That's geopolitics. You even though the guy you're rooting for is imperfect you may want him or her to succeed more than you want radical revanchist forces to succeed. And that's okay. Right. And by the way, it doesn't mean that he or she is perfect and they can improve their governance. They can improve their human rights practices, but you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater because otherwise you're left with the villain standing and the good guy laying down at the end of the movie. Now, now we've moved to a positive space and I appreciate that. We have to figure out what who's who's better, who's closer, who's worth supporting and how we're going to support them. And that's a positive mission for us and for our government. And so on that positive note, Elon Berman, thank you very much for an enlightening conversation. You took us all around the world. You you said some things that were depressing, but also at the end of the day, realistic. And I appreciate the education. I know our listeners do too. Thank you. My pleasure. Anytime. <laughs>